You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Just beginning. William Shatner. Take us out. Is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy. Is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly. Is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan. Is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei. Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Major Barrett is Dr. Christine Chapman. Walter Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya. Star Trek, the motion picture. Gene Roddenberry's production of a Robert Wise film. Coming this Christmas from Paramount. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perón, and today we are going to be hitting posters of the month. With our selected posters, we will have Star Trek The Motion Picture, the teaser poster, and a Star Wars Procter & Gamble Point of Purchase poster. Two very different kind of posters, two different franchises that I love, Star Trek and Star Wars. Very easy to return to those two franchises. And after that, we are going to talk about the tragic current passing of J.W. Rinsler, the prolific uh, Lucasfilm editor who uh, wrote a couple of very, very successful making of Star Wars books and then moved on to other franchises, including Planet of the Apes and Alien. Um, We're going to go over a little bit of his most successful books and the trials and tribulations of working at Lucasfilm. So let's begin with Star Trek, the motion picture teaser poster. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, 
And I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. All right, for today's posters of the month, I'm going to start off with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, this isn't the one sheet that you probably would have seen in the movie theaters. This is a kind of like a teaser poster. One of the first ones, if not the first one, to be put out there to start teasing the movie. Now, what you have to keep in mind here is that Star Trek has had a bumpy ride <laughs> making its way to the movies. Uh, the TV show was out, syndication made it popular, syndication and conventions gathered fuel for people's interest in the show to the extent where they were going to actually make another TV show called Phase 2. I did a, an entire show about this. You guys can look it up in the uh, search feature of our website. Put Phase 2 and you'll probably end up there. But then Star Wars came and that just basically blew everything out of the water in terms of every studio in the world wanted their own Star Wars. And Star Trek was designated to be Paramount's answer to Star Wars. At the time, they were further along in their plans to do this Phase 2 series. They had already hired some of the actors. They had already designed a lot of the sets, a lot of the ships. They've done some test footage shots, camera tests, that sort of thing, of, of the actors in their costumes doing some of their scenes. But then when the final decision came for it to be a film instead of a television series, and just as important, they were able to lock in the stars, uh, Shatner, obviously, and a little more difficult to get was Leonard Nimoy. Once they were locked in those two guys, then everything changed. They hired new people, new designers, new you know model makers, you name it. Everything was brand new because now the scope was different. The director was a big shot, you know, <laughs> movie maker with a history of fantastic films, Robert Wise. So everything had to change at that point. So out comes this poster. Uh, now, by looking at the poster, you can probably tell that when this poster was put together, which or when this poster was released, more likely, which is about a year before the movie came out, they had already possibly shot some of the stuff because the poster actually has pictures of the stars in their costumes, in their sets. Now, granted, a lot of the pictures look like publicity photos. They look like they were taken specifically for the purpose of publicity. You might even see some of these photos in other material, like trading cards or, you know, actor profiles, that kind of thing. But the design of this poster is very of its time. Let's put it that way. First off the bat, the artist is John Berkey. I've talked about John Berkey before. He is the guy that did the posters that were included inside the Star Wars album, the soundtrack. If you guys remember, because I, I bought it and I had it up here for a while, that design, that poster that he made of the TIE Fighters and the X-Wings, you know, attacking the Death Star, you know, fighting along the space area there, that was his. You know, he did a couple of other renditions, 
another profiles. And I, I remember I, I mentioned this a long time ago, how those individual posters that were not necessarily included, you know, with the album, those additional drawings eventually made it to something. All that art was reused in some kind of merchandising endeavor up to this day. You still see that art. Well, here you have a Star Trek version, I guess, of his kind of art. The poster is pretty simple. You have Star Trek the motion picture up on top, a very gigantic Enterprise ship coming at you right up front, and then a strip of all of the stars of the film, and then the, the, the film information underneath, the credits. So the pictures in the bottom that I'm, that I'm telling you about, uh, you have uh, William Shatner as Captain Kirk, Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock, DeForest Kelly as Dr. Bones McCoy, James Doohan as Scotty, George Takai as Sulu, Nichelle Nichols as Ahura, Walter Koenig as Chekhov, and Stephen Collins as Lieutenant Wheeler Deckard. Obviously, Deckard is the new one you know, on the list. Everybody else is already there. Now, on the credits underneath, the actual film credits... Uh, you have starting William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly. Got it. Stephen Collins as Decker. Got it. He's the new guy. Co-starring James Doohan. Okay, that's cool. George Takei. Okay, that's cool. Majel Barrett. Her picture is not featured. Walter Koenig. Okay, cool. He's there. Nichelle Nichols. Okay, cool. And Persis Kambada. Now, she is the um, the romantic interest to Stephen Collins that later becomes V'ger, blah, blah, blah. But her picture is not revealed at this point. So there, there are a couple of actors that are not pictured. Now, the idea of putting everybody's pictures there is something that is a little bit of a throwback to the 70s, I would say, or even earlier than that. Something that by the 80s, they kind of started getting rid of that whole cast of characters underneath. Now, granted, this is a type of poster that is trying to throw as much at you without spoiling anything, obviously. But what is very important about this poster is the fact that you are seeing the Enterprise. And not only is it the Enterprise, it's the refitted Enterprise. What's important about this particular Enterprise that they're showing you is that this particular design, not this drawing, but this design of the Enterprise, is something that Berkey was able to copy from the conceptual drawings for Phase 2. At some point, they decided that the ship that needed to be redone when they were making Phase 2, and they did. The original designer of the Enterprise, Matt Jeffries, was brought in to start working on Phase 2. And he was able to upgrade the original ship. Obviously, it was much bigger. It became a much bigger ship. It remained in its main components in terms of a saucer, and then you have the nacelles, you know, the two side engines and the deflector right in the middle. You know, you have that that Y, kind of like a Y formation uh, that is very popular, you know, with Star Trek. But what he did was he made the ship much bigger. The nacelles, they went from being these tube kind of things in the original, more to a flat rectangular, angular design. Again, more slick, more aerodynamic. I know space aerodynamic doesn't really matter, but it looks cool. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It looks cool. Same thing with the deflector. The deflector went from being, again, a, a very prominent circular tube shape. Here, it became more streamlined. It's nice and fat in the, 
in the front, but then it kind of pyramids out to the back. It becomes more of a point. The struts that are holding the nacelles go from being very angular, basic, you know, 90 degree turns to a little more of a slick, kind of like a... Um, uh, spoiler <laughs> in a car kind of look to it. It, it. it basically it becomes way more modern. The connection between the saucer and the deflector is also a little more angular. They've added more features to the uh, you know the the torpedo bays and stuff like that. They're more clear. So that is what they decided to go with in this poster because they knew that. This is the direction that the final ship was going to look like. Now, at the time this poster was made, obviously, they did not have, you know, the, the, the final specs of the film version of it. So, again, for teaser purposes, this was good enough. This was fine. It gave you an idea. If you are, you know, a Star Trek fan, that's all you need to, need to know. That's all you need to know. There's a ship that looks like the Enterprise, and then you see a whole bunch of faces underneath that are, oh my God, those are the original Enterprise actors. And you're like, I'm there. I am so there. Another little aspect that changed and shows you exactly why this particular poster was a little early in terms of design purposes, not only just for the ship, but the fonts that are used for Star Trek right on the top. Those are fonts that do not remain for the duration of this particular film. In other words, by the time they put out a second poster, later on, they put out a second version of this poster that looks pretty much exactly like it, except that they added Kambada's picture to the bottom, you know, roster of pictures. They still didn't put uh, Majel Barrett there, <laughs> but they added her picture. And then on the top, it says, a 23rd century odyssey now. Coming this Christmas to a theater near you, you know, in the bottom. So one of the things they say is that with this poster, they're trying to almost remind you of something like 2001. That's how grand, you know, the scope of this film wanted to be. And there's a Star Trek The Motion Picture, right? Where the other Star Trek The Motion Picture. But this time around, they have at least the proper fonts. They have the... Star Trek fonts, the Star Trek fonts that you will see on future films, including this one. Then you also have a, I would call it a third teaser poster that was out there, which is basically just a space background with Star Trek, the motion picture, no pictures, no ship, nothing like that. And they're using the proper fonts and they're introducing a lot of color into those letters and into the, the surroundings of those letters. So now we're getting a little bit closer to the final concept of the poster, the one that you are going to see. And obviously, by the time you get to the film being out, you know, in a movie theater, you have the famous Bob Peak Star Trek, the motion picture. And then it says there is no comparison. And that's when you have your Kirk, Spock, and Ilea in the middle with the rainbow colors going up and down, you know, streaming from the ship right below their, you know, below her chin. The ship is there, Star Trek the motion picture. And that is the, the, the poster that we are most familiar with because by this point, it's all set. This is the final look of what this film is going to look like. This is the poster, the official poster. But again, 
when you go back to the beginning, this is a really interesting... I, I mean, again, don't get me wrong, I like the Bob Peak, but and eventually I, I want to own the, that Bob Peak poster. I do own the Star Trek II poster because it, it is Star Trek II. It's like you can't get away from Star Trek II. And I do own the Star Trek IV poster, I believe, because I actually bought it when the movie came out. That's an original one that I have. But for in this particular case, this, this Berkey poster that I have is a reproduction, obviously. It serves its purpose. <laughs> it's exactly what I want it to be. And I, I like it. I like it because it gives you that, that pre-Star Trek, you know, kind of like, we're not exactly ready. We have something in mind. We are putting a lot of money into this. It's coming. This movie, whether you like it or not, is coming. And here's kind of what it's going to look like. That's what this poster tells me. And the fact that they're bold enough to show us at least a ship, I think it was kind of like a... Like I mentioned before, it's kind of like you don't want to spoil any surprises, but you got to throw the fans a bone. You got to give them a bone that is tasty enough for them to say, well, it's not just, you know, it's not just a logo they're throwing at us. They're throwing us some some mean potatoes here. And, and the fact that they're already giving you a preview of what the new Enterprise ship looks like, that's some heavy duty uh, information that they're throwing at the fans. And once again... This one you can get eh, for about maybe 20 bucks. I think I got it from like walmart.com or something. One of those third partner companies that they do reprints, you know, that kind of thing. For our second poster of the month, we are going back to Star Wars, our, our safe place, the place we go quite often. This particular poster that we're going to look at today, it's a promotional point of purchase, I think, poster. That's kind of how it's described. This is a poster that you would have gotten when you purchased something on a store, similar to the Coca-Cola posters, for example. These you would have gotten from Procter & Gamble for customers of Cascade, Cheer, and Dawn Detergents. Not sure exactly how it worked. I don't know if there was like a something that dispensed the poster and you would pay for your item and then you would get your poster for an additional dollar or something like that. But it was something like that where you purchase a product and you get a poster either for free or a reduced price. Actually, I just found a little more detailed information on how that worked. And I found it through a picture that is posted on the Star Wars Collector's Archive. That is a website that is... They have pictures of just about everything Star Wars related ever made, manufactured in any shape or form. So but it takes a little digging, but eventually you might be able to get in there in terms of finding what you're looking for. So what I found was a display ad, a point of purchase, cardboard mock-up poster display and poster holder. So the way that this thing worked was you purchased a product and you get a poster. So they give you three different products to, to, to select. Cheer detergent, Dawn uh, liquid detergent, Cascade uh, dishwasher detergent. And you get a poster for every one of those items. So you have this display thing and all the sample posters that I was just talking about, that I will be talking about, they're all sl sliding inside a box underneath. So basically, you just slide a poster out, take it to the register, show them that you're buying your box of Cascade, and it's free. These were totally free. They were giving out free. Again, this is something you don't see anymore. <laughs> it's so weird and of its time. The display poster itself for the, the mock-up 
uses the pictures of R2-D2 and C-3PO from one of those posters. The artist is named Ken Goldhammer. And it's really difficult to find any information on this individual. It's very possible, very possible that he worked for an, for an agency. So they don't pro, agencies traditionally don't profile their artists too much because they're, they're kind of hired guns, most of them. The poster came out in 1978, and the particular one that I'm looking at right now, the one that I have displaying in my office, is a set of three posters that I purchased. This one has Vader and Obi-Wan dueling. There's also a uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 one, and there is a hero poster with Luke and Leia and Chewie and Han all kind of shooting you know, towards different parts. I picked this one because I kind of liked it the best in terms of it's representing that fight between the two that never got very action-oriented, as we all know. The limitations, not only of the actors, but of the technology, made that duel a lot less action-oriented than what was probably intended or that we wish we would have gotten. I know recently there was this video floating around on Facebook, and I'm sure it was in all, all over social media. Somebody did a like a re-edit of that fight and they added some scenes from recreated footage or somehow where it's a very action-oriented duel where there are a lot of things happen that is a lot more what would be a modern star wars lightsaber duel but this one is kind of neat because it you know it, it does it, to me it kind of shows more action or it, it implies way more action than what we really got you also have the Death Star in the background. You have on the right top side, rebel pilots, and they're all kind of looking at the camera, like they're kind of posing for a picture, almost like a group shot with an X-wing back there. And on the left top, you have a whole bunch of stormtroopers that seem to be kind of running towards, it kind of looks like uh, it could be the Death Star, it could be the Rebel Blockade Runner because it's kind of like a white background. So. That's back there, too. And in the middle top, you have three X-Wings chasing what could be three TIE Fighters, but one of them looks a lot like Vader's TIE Fighter, and the other ones kind of look a little bit also like Vader TIE Fighters. They're not exactly... The wing is not exactly the same, and even the cockpits looks, look a little different, so I wonder exactly how they got those pictures from, those designs from. If I didn't know any better, I'd be, I mean, the rest of it looks very accurate as if they've seen the movie, but for some reason, those TIE Fighters look a little weird. And you have a whole bunch of X-Wings shooting on the TIE Fighters, which, again, this didn't happen in the movie. Vader never got shot on other than the uh, Millennium Falcon. So I know I'm a little bit of a stickler. Now, another interesting fact of this poster, a little tidbit, is that if you look at the lightsabers, where well, at least they're properly colored, you know, you don't have any yellow lightsabers or anything silly like that. But what's really, really interesting is that the tip of the lightsabers are pointy. Again, goes back to, did, did this guy like watch the movie? <laughs> or is he going over some pictures or something? I don't know. It's 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 highly possible that uh, you never know. Some of these artists haven't even seen the movie. They were shown some pictures. Looking at the other 
posters, which I'm not exactly profiling right now, there are some inaccuracies here or there. There's some details that are not completely there. The proportions of the ship are not exactly... Like, the the nose of the X-Wing is not as long as it should be. It should be a lot longer. The cockpit of Vader's TIE Fighter, let's say, is not exact. It's almost like X-shape. And it's it's really not like that in the movie. But... What's really, really interesting, like I said, the fact that the the lightsabers are pointy. And we didn't get to see pointy lightsabers until until the prequels, I think it was, when they started kind of introducing more of a point to a lightsaber rather than the usual, you know, kind of like a like a fluorescent tube kind of <laughs> shape to them. The other thing is also that the the handles of the lightsabers are very they're very small and they both have a two-fisted grip that they're about to you know, they're about to clash, but their grip completely encompasses the lightsaber where with Vader, you don't see the hilt at all. And with Obi-Wan, you see just a tiny, tiny little bit of the hilt, which I find a little odd, you know, that they would go that way. The Death Star, like I said, is in the background. Uh, the lights could be considered a little exaggerated. You never saw that kind of red and white and lights, you know, kind of floating around. Again, this isn't a super screen accurate depiction but it's very good you know compared to some other ones it's not as uh as surrealistic as some other artists you know more uh their view of you know a different kind of view on what it would look like the faces look good i mean granted you're only dealing with alec guinness as far as a human face the vader costume in general looks very it looks really good but like i said it, it does seem to have some items or some bits and pieces that are either purposely exaggerated, done by mistake, or they just had no clue what those things were supposed to look like in the first place. So I'm not sure about it. This is a poster, as I mentioned before, that I had never seen before. I only got this poster and the other two companion pieces maybe about two years ago, but I was not aware of any promotional posters, specifically for Star Wars. I do remember for... Empire Strikes Back, that they did have these uh, these posters that they would sell, specifically pictures. There were photographs. But this is something that you don't see anymore, and that is kind of letting uh, other artists, commissioning them, I guess. And I'm not sure exactly who would pay for this, because it's kind of like you have your your corporations who want to cash in on it and they want to be able to cross promote their product and and attach it to a to a franchise, you know, entity like Star Wars. Uh, so it's kind of like you would picture that they would be going to Lucasfilm and saying, "Hey, do you got any posters laying around we can uh, you know, you got any art?" So I'm not sure exactly how this came about. I don't know if if Lucasfilm gets to approve, you know, this particular artist. Was this artist always in, you know, somebody that they had considered themselves or was this artist specifically brought in because of Procter and Gamble wanting to do this cross promotion kind of deal you know did they hire the artist did Lucasfilm hire it or did Procter and Gamble hire the artist the artist again very difficult I couldn't find any background I did find other pictures he drew and he, drew, he seems to draw a lot of commercial product related paintings so he's all over the place in terms of how much uh, different things he paints or painted. But it is a little bit of a mystery exactly how this came about. I don't see this 
anymore. You know, with current films, I don't see this kind of cross promotion anymore where they would, somebody would go out of their way to hire an artist. Nowadays, the best thing you're going to get is an actual poster with a photo or the poster of the movie, the one sheet and reduced, you know, miniaturized or whatever. But this is a different era. This kind of takes you back. I mean, this came out in 1978. You keep, keep that in mind. This is like the year after, or, or at least six or seven months after Star Wars came out. So this is one of those uh, things where it was like there was not too much material out there. All you had as far as merchandising was the factor posters, the puzzles, you know, all those paper product type of things that they were able to churn out really fast before later on in 1978 action figures and the ships and the vehicles and all that other stuff started coming out. So this was a period where you would imagine people were starving for Star Wars material and it was like anything they can get their hands on, they would bring it out. So like I said, this is a little more like those Coca-Cola posters, you know, stuff that they part. Now to me, the Coca-Cola posters, they seem a little more professional than this. Maybe it's because of the artist or the style, because you're dealing in a similar fashion, you know, a set of posters that you get once you buy certain things, you get your poster in one way or the other. But this is a, this is a really strange, uh, bizarre, kind of off to the side style. It, it almost looks as, as if it's, it could be fan art. It could be something, it could be a, a bootleg if you're, if you're, if you don't know the history of it. You know, you could be going through some pages and going, wait a minute, this isn't real. Not the, I never saw this before in the, in the like the Lucasfilm archival, you know, poster repertoire. You would have to dig through some of those poster books to see if these even show up there because they do look odd. They do look a little, oh, that's unusual. Unlike the Coca-Cola posters, I would say. So I'm glad that, I mean... It's good to know this is an official poster. And the artist does sign these posters. You have to look around the edges. This particular one, you go to the, let's say, the bottom right. So it would be around the 5 o'clock mark of the Death Star. You see his name down there, Ken Goldman. And it has, you know, the copyright date and the information, you know, having to do with Procter & Gamble and, you know, those particular products that uh, you would be buying in order to get this poster. Again... An unusual poster that technically is an official item of the Star Wars franchise. And the best thing about it is that it is not that expensive. You can find this three-poster set pretty cheap on eBay. Uh, it looks as if they've made so many of them. And they're because they're not that popular, they're also not that expensive. So if you're into posters, specifically originals, not reprints. You know, I buy a lot of reprints because the, the original stuff is so crazy expensive. But... This is an original. Just like the Coca-Cola posters I, I was able to get. These are all originals. So take a look. You might be able to find your own set. Matu, Mirada, You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis... Are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. A few days ago, we just heard of the passing of author J.W. Rinsler. That is a name that is somewhat familiar to me because I've been buying uh, quite a number of his books for years now. 
I was able to attend, I think, at least one panel discussion when he was, I think he was releasing one of the Empire Strikes Back uh, making of books a couple years ago. And what this man had published was a combination of not only Star Wars books, but then he moved on to do other franchises or other properties, if you will. And his particular calling card, if you will, or the thing that I think he excelled at was making the making of books, the definitive making of Star Wars or definitive making of Empire Strikes Back. He did Return of the Jedi. He did the Indiana Jones series. Uh, and then he moved on uh, with some other ones. But he was basically the, the executive editor of Lucasfilm for about 15 years. For a long time, uh, a lot of these books that I buy uh, would have his name on and sometimes he would be very involved or not as involved, but there was a combination of uh, of involvement, let's say, of, of, of a lot of these books. But his top, you know, best, biggest things were those making of books. I've talked about the making of Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi, I think, in the past. These are big coffee table-sized books. They were amazing books as far as I'm concerned, even though... One of the things that I always mention, you know, when I talk to people about those books is that those books were the Lucasfilm version of history. In other words, that is the definitive history as far as that company is willing to go with it. Uh, there are areas that they don't want to touch upon too much, obviously, because everybody writes their own history. You know, the winner of the war creates the history <laughs> for what just happened. And don't get me wrong, it is a treasure trove of information that you get out of these books, but it is not all sides of the story. I love the books. The books are a little on the expensive side, or they were a little bit on the expensive side initially. But the other thing that you could also purchase, if I remember right, was it was either Kindle or book on uh, iPad, iBook, or something like that, where you get a version of the book... Uh, for an extra like 12 or $15 or something. And you also get access to kind of like online content, videos, stuff like that, uh, that you normally would not get by just having a book. I believe there might have been also some sound bites or sound effects or stuff like that, that, that you would have access to when you're dealing, you know, with a, with a, with a touchpad device while viewing the book in that format. I believe they've only done that as far as his books are concerned, to the Star Wars ones. The, I don't think the Indiana Jones or any of the other ones had it. We first got a heads up about a, I think it was about a year ago, where I believe his wife posted something on social media about how he was suffering from pancreatic cancer. And she was there to kind of promote a fiction book that he wrote called All Up, which I purchased. I haven't read it yet. And it was almost kind of like a, I don't know, it kind of felt a little bit like a fundraiser, which was a little unusual. I mean, it was sad. It was shocking. It was unusual. It was just weird that, oh my God, this guy who is kind of young, he's like, I believe he was 58 when he died very recently, but it was almost, you almost got the feeling of they're trying to sell something before he dies. Like he's trying to set up his family with a little more money here or there and that is kind of shocking in a way in terms of, oh, my God, this guy was like the top book guy for Lucasfilm. And 
at this stage of his life, you know, they have to be very public about it in order to possibly generate a little more money. And then I think it was maybe about two weeks ago or something, another message was put out there. I don't remember if it was his wife or one of his kids or something about a Kickstarter or some kind of a donation for his end of life arrangements. Again, trying to generate some money, some donations. And it's one of those double whammies uh, in terms of, on the one hand, it's like, oh my God, this guy is not, you know, he's really going to be gone very soon. So as a fan, you're like, oh my God, you know, you're not going to see his products anymore. You know, the, the thing that he's good at. And on the other hand, you're like, are they really that bad off that they have to go out, you know, in social media to ask for donations to, to take care of some of the expenses of, of what's about to happen? So it, it felt kind of weird. But if you kind of look at the history of what happened to him at Lucasfilm, uh, you, you might kind of, maybe understand or or make a little sense of it or maybe maybe not like i said he published i think almost like 20 different books or more it, it was amazing the amount of books uh, and let me let me just rattle off a, a couple of them just to see if uh, if you guys are familiar with them this is just star wars we're talking about obviously we said the making of star wars the making of empire the making of jedi he also did the Sounds of Star Wars. This was a cool book because it had an audio feature where you go and press a button, or press a code, and it would make the sound of a sound effect. This is a Ben Burt book primarily, but Rinsler is the one that put it together. So that's a cool little book. He did the comic book version of The Star Wars. If you guys remember when they published what that original script in comic book form was going to look like as far as the movie. He was the writer of that one, which again, another great different aspect to it. It's not so much a nonfiction book. It's more of a fiction book, obviously. So it's a different, I guess you could say writing style or, or genre of writing. He's not writing about the making of, he's actually writing as if the story is taking place. Cool little graphic novel. He also put out the uh, Star Wars blueprints. This is a book that talk about coffee table. Oh my God. This book, I believe, was like huge size-wise. I remember seeing it on display somewhere, and it's like you could barely lift it. It was so big. Let me think. What is a good description of how big this book was? It was, I would say it's like a, if you guys have, you know those little folding tables you, you kind of set up in front of a TV to do some work or something like that? A little bigger than a folding table. It was like, it was a huge book. But then they put out a smaller version of it too, a, a, an economical version. Because the the original one was, was very expensive. I ended up buying the other one. I honestly don't even know if I read that book. And it's funny because with a lot of his books, I always used to say, this is not the type of book you want to read in bed. Not only the making of books, but these, these blueprint books. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're the type of person that falls asleep while reading, if you were to get hit in the face with one of these books, you might end up in the hospital because they were so big. Uh, and that's a downside of a lot of these books is that, you know, they're the type of books that you, you have to read like sitting on a chair on a table uh, or maybe on your lap, you know, because they're not the type of books that you can read in bed comfortably. It would require a lot of uh, additional support <laughs> to be able to read these books in bed. But yeah, the Blueprints book was there too. He also wrote The Making of Revenge of the Sith. Let's keep in mind that when they put out these big 
original trilogy coffee table books, we already had a series of making of books for the prequels. And he uh, was responsible for the last one, the Revenge of the Sith, which, again, because of the publishing schedule and the making of the movie happening at the same time, the book has a bonus chapter that is available online. So there was additional information that you can download and read. And I did that. And I actually, I even printed it and I added it to the book. I put it in, you know, inside the book. I slipped it in there, which was a bizarre concept, which I'm not entirely sure if the purpose of it was as bonus or was, oh my God, we're not done yet scenario. Maybe it was a combination of both. Who knows? Uh, But you never know. I I honestly don't know which way it is, but it is. Now, this wasn't a hardcover book. This was more of those um, soft cover, large size, but soft cover books. He also put out storyboard books, uh, the original trilogy storyboard books. They did a couple of those too, I remember. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that while he's the author of these books, he's also editing a lot of the other books that are taking place, you know, behind the scenes in, in, in Lucasfilm. So he had a hand, you know, in, in, in editing, for example, the Star Wars Attack of the Clones visual diction, some of those visual dictionaries that I've talked about, you know, for a long time, some of those cross-section books, he was involved in that too, but again, not as the lead author of that book. All those character encyclopedias, the dressing of the galaxy, you know, all of those. Again, half of my library uh, that I have, pretty much most of my Star Wars library, at one way or another, have something to do with Jonathan Rinsler. He even wrote, I believe, two episodes of The Clone Wars. They were called The Disappeared, part one and part two. So, you know, he he dabbled outside of just print within the Star Wars world. The last thing that he was writing for Star Wars was the making of The Force Awakens. And it was supposed to be, again, one of these coffee table-sized books. But that book was unceremoniously and mysteriously, if you will, canceled. Now, keep in mind, this was around the time when Lucas announced that he was going to sell to Disney. And once they sold to Disney, a lot of people ended up leaving by choice and not by choice. And I'm pretty certain that Rinsler was one of those people. He was one of those people that Disney decided they didn't want anymore. I'm pretty certain it caused some major friction. It wasn't a mutually agreed departure, if you will. I, I forget what the phrasing is when, when people uh, <laughs> break up in a business manner. But it did result in the cancellation of that book, which is like, oh, my God, I think they were pretty much done with it. And it's like now it just sits in a shelf somewhere. One of the things about those books that you might want to think in terms of, well, yeah, maybe it is a good idea to kind of put the brakes on that book is that even though, as I mentioned earlier, A lot of these books are sterilized in a way where it makes the creators, the official people of the movie, more or less look like the heroes of the story. The Force Awakens had just come out or was about to come out, so things were still kind of in flux. The movie had been delayed at one point because of a combination of, I think Harrison Ford broke his leg uh, while filming, and... J.J. Abrams uh, was demanding more time. He wanted more time. They were not going. He was not going to make that summer release that everybody was assuming was going to happen. Remember, Force Awakens ended up coming out in the at Christmas. So, yeah, there was already some fluttering of 
problems that you could say, well, maybe they just don't want to talk about those problems at this point. Maybe it's a little too early to talk about that sort of thing. And yeah, at the same time, with Disney taking over and the reaction of, you know, Star Wars being Disneyfied and all that kind of stuff, people being laid off because they were no longer needed, I think there was the possibility that you might not get very positive <laughs> nostalgic look at the making of this film when some people you know kind of lose their jobs in the process or even before it so for again for one reason or another this book was delayed it was shelved whatever you want to call it and that was pretty much the end of his association with star wars now what happened next kind of fuels a little bit more this um, breakup scenario uh, between Rensselaer and Lucasfilm. He uh, started putting out a blog having to do with the making of Revenge of the Sith. Again, a continuation in a way of the that original book that we were talking about. And in these blogs, there was a lot of information having to do with things that didn't work, problems on the set, attitudes, bad decisions, all the kind of stuff that never makes it into a book of that manner. And it got to the point, I think, where he eventually took the blog down because I believe Lucasfilm might have contacted him. Maybe legal action might have been mentioned. Not being able to talk about business things after you leave a company, clauses might have come up. But what is interesting is that that blog exists out in the internet because a lot of people saved it. If possible, I will give you the link of where to find it because it definitely gives you a heads up of something's changed here, something's different, something's happened, and it's not that good. You go from being a, a top person, you know, in the Lucas Empire to kind of like a Gary Kurtz, a, oh, well, I don't like you anymore, go away. You know, that kind of a feel to it. There are a couple of interviews out there. Um, I listened to one of them, I think it was about a year ago, where he was promoting All Up. And they do ask him questions, pretty direct questions about, you know, what happened with Lucasfilm and how did that all come about? What about the blog? What happened with the blog? And he, he does mention stuff having to do with well, you never know. One day I might be able to talk about it, you know, that sort of thing. So you never know. We might be getting more information at some point. We'll see. Now, once that happened in uh, 2015, I think it was, 2000, yeah, I think it was around 2015, which is when uh, Force Awakens came out, he started working on other books. And it was kind of good to see him again putting out these large size, you know, making of books. You know, that, that kind of format sort of continued. He put out a book for a movie called Monster House, which I'm not very familiar with the book. I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't know how big, crazy it is. I did mention Indiana Jones because technically that is part of Lucasfilm. That one came out a long time ago. But what he then did was put out a making of Planet of the Apes books. Again, these monster size, coffee table size books. Fantastic book. I, I believe I might have talked about it on a previous episode. What a great book. It's such a deep dive you know, into a specific film or a franchise or whatever that, again, I wish we could continue with these books. I, I, I don't know if anybody will continue making them. He also put out The Making of Alien, which I have, and The Making of Aliens. I believe I haven't touched those two yet. So I'm kind of saving them. It's almost like I'm savoring them because there's only so many left now and there's probably not more 
coming in any shape or form. But talk about those are two, you know, it's definitely looking like he's going the Fox route in a way with these three books. And like I said, I can't wait to start them. Uh, He did a Rick Baker, like the history of Rick Baker, like a two-volume set. Again, I wouldn't mind owning it, but I think it is way, way, way too expensive. It's a huge, huge two-volume monster book. Huge. But that's one I might only pick up one day if I can find it on sale or something. Like I said, The Making of Aliens. He does have credited a Howard Kazanjian, A Producer's Life. From Hitchcock to Peckinpah to Spielberg to Lucas, 50 Years of Collaboration. This is a, a book about the producer, Howard Kazanjian, who used to, uh, we remember him most from um, Raiders and from Return of the Jedi. A really unusual book. You, know, you don't usually see too many books about producers, but I, do, I believe I do have it on my wish list books of Amazon that, are, that is coming soon. And if you really look carefully <laughs> at some of his Previous interviews, uh, it is stated that he finished a The Shining book, which if they are going to put out a coffee table size making of The Shining, that is going to be amazing. I, I cannot wait to, and, and again, from what I read, and this is these are postings that are probably about a year old or, or, or a little less than a year old. He did state that he was done with that book. The book is done. Now it's a matter of them just putting it out. So it would be uh, it would be really cool to get get our hands on that book. I do remember, uh, like I said, I do remember kind of meeting him, you know, attending a a, a panel, uh, and I think I might have even asked a question. And I remember one of the things that always uh, stuck in my head is the fact that, uh, and again, I don't remember if this is one of the questions I asked him or something I read online. When the movie Tron Legacy came out, there's a character called Rinsler. And Rinsler is a very unusual name. You don't just hear that name everywhere. And it's like kind of, well, the only Rinsler I've ever heard of is is uh, Jonathan Rinsler, J.W. Rinsler. And uh, so the question was brought up to him. And he's like, yeah, apparently, from what I understand, uh, I don't know if him or or the the writers of the, of, of the script uh, said that, uh, you know, when they were brainstorming ideas and names and characters and locations and all that kind of stuff for the movie Tron Legacy they did have one of those gigantic making of books and on the side of the book it said J.W. Rinsler and that is how they came up with the name Rinsler in the Tron film it's because of one of these books that J.W. Rinsler put out Again, this is um, an unusual, sad uh, situation that uh, this man has passed on. I've been looking forward to his books. It was already pretty sad or uh, shocking, the fact that he had left Lucasfilm under the conditions he had left Lucasfilm. And then there was that little, like I said, that little flare-up of of information that they were kind of, I think, telling him, stop talking about Lucasfilm. (laughs) And then he started putting out these other books that I go, oh my God, they're just as good as those making of Star Wars books. Now he's making of these other very, very famous, wonderful films. And I was hoping that this would have gone on for a while. And again, just as uh, shocking as these developments in his career and these events that take place that you're like, whoa, that's kind of weird. The news that he was ill and the news that he had passed and, you know, the family asking for help and that sort of thing. Lucasfilm on their social media feed did put a, uh, you know, news that one of their previous editors, print editors, had passed away and they gave him a, li- a nice little, it's an obit basically uh, of the things he'd done and, you know, how much he would be missed and how the prayers go out, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
yeah, again, it's you know, it's you can't really put too much stock on those things. It's like it's the corporate thing to do. It's the nice thing to do. It's whatever you know. However you want to read it, it's it's one of those things that it's it's bittersweet. Let's call it that. Let's let's that's a good word. It's bitter and it's sweet at the same time. So the bottom line here is that if you guys have ever even tried these books and like them, there's more out there. There's possibly at least one more or one more coming. Hopefully. Uh, there's other things that are his work. For example, that book, All Up, is still available, I believe, on Amazon. I think it has to do with the history of, of the space race. It's, it's, uh, it's fiction. There are other materials out there. And, and personally, for me, not only just like you, there's possibly more material coming. I do have two gigantic monster-sized books on my shelf ready to go uh, pretty soon. So I hope you guys give it a try. Find these books. They're a lot cheaper now than they were when they first came out. And um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, this is what's happening now. We're starting to lose some of the uh, some of the top people uh, associated with our fandom, even in the publishing side. Um, amazingly. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We started off with a couple of posters uh, for our Posters of the Month series. Man, do I love going over these posters, and it gives me an excuse to be able to display them and rotate them in and out of my office. First up, we had the Star Trek The Motion Picture teaser poster. It's a poster I absolutely love. A friend of mine uh, showed it to me that he had displayed it on his home, and I was like, man, I want to get that one. That is a great, great poster that I wasn't very, very familiar with, but it's just, just a great poster. And then we hit... One of these Procter & Gamble point-of-purchase posters that was part of a collection that I was completely unaware of. Totally, totally unaware of this particular one. I, you know, I knew about the Coca-Cola ones or, you know, those kinds of posters. But I've never heard of some other products and other companies that were also kind of jumping on that bandwagon of, you know, you buy one of my products and I'll give you a free Star Wars poster. This is one of those. So I hope you enjoy those. And then we talked about the unfortunate passing of J.W. Rinsler, a uh, prolific individual in the world of publishing in the Star Wars Lucasfilm company. Plus, he then continued to uh, produce uh, some of those very thorough, super gigantic coffee table books with other franchises like Planet of the Apes, Alien Aliens, and hopefully, if things go the right way, we might see a posthumously published The Shining book. So, on behalf of everyone here, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. The Empire Strikes Back is a great film, and it's definitely, you know, the top one or two fan favorite of all the six Star Wars films. I love you. I know. But as great and dramatic as the film is, it was a struggle to get that film made. It's something that people aren't that aware of, uh, really, until now, with the work that uh, Jonathan Rinsler has done to create the making of The Empire Strikes Back. Personally, I consider it an honor to be able to try and tell the story of the, of the cast and crew who created this cinematic masterpiece. 
Jonathan became our own in-house Indiana Jones. He was able to dig into the archives and the library and all the different storage materials that we have to discover things that literally had never seen the light of day since the films were made. If someone doesn't do what they did for Empire, all this information and even these techniques, which are still valuable today, are going to be lost. It's good that Jonathan was in there, you know, and that Lucasfilm did this and pushed to get this information archive it the way it, it actually was while we're still around to talk about it. People who read through The Empire Strikes Back making a book will see great on-set photography of Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, George Irving Kirshner, artworks by Ralph Aquari and Joe Johnston that were discovered in the archives that nobody's seen before. We'll read about the snowstorms in the wastes of Norway. We'll read about a lot of the tension on set, the financial problems. I decided I was going to finance the film myself, that I was going to make it completely independently. It just wasn't going fast enough, and I was running out of money. They'll uncover a story that pretty much mirrors the, the epic story being told in the film. If you love The Empire Strikes Back, if you're a Star Wars fan, if you're a student of film history, you're going to love this book. It takes you to places that we rarely get to see in looking at the history of making films, and especially a beloved film like this. The Force is with you, young Skywalker. But you are not a Jedi yet. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2021. Oh, This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>